Welcome to the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of our faith. This podcast has been serving you. Hit follow and the notification bell. That way you can stay up to date. Today, Nader, it's good to see you. Yes, Nate sir. Nate English, our college pastor here at Crossroads. And we have Dr. Neil Martin, who is faculty of theology at Oxford University, pastor at Oxford Presbyterian, director of Be Less Ministries, which we're going to talk a little bit about that as well, and former associate pastor at Crossroads Bible Church. It's been 10 years, hasn't it? It has, yeah, yeah. Wow, and I was never here when you were at Crossroads, but maybe you could tell us, like, how did you even end up at Crossroads? Oh my goodness. And Because you came over for Calvin. I didn't, or no, no, I didn't even come over for Calvin. Okay. I, did, I did study at Calvin while I was here, but that wasn't the reason, so. I mean, this could take quite a long time. It's okay, give how, us the, hey, give know. us the little, the cliff, the little notes. cliff Notes version. Oh my goodness. Um, so we came here in January 2008. So yeah, we flew in on a plane on the 8th stroke 9th of January 2008. So, sorry, 2009. So 2008 was when it was all in the planning. Um, yeah. And yeah, it just came out of a, I don't know, a, a really strange season, n- not something that you'd ever plan. And even when I kind of talk back over it, it's hard to see. I just... I kind of give up talking to people about this because it just sounds so unrealistic, um, but it is actually what happened. So I was sick from when I was 24 to when I was about 35. And that summer of 2008 was the point when that changed dramatically. Um, so I had been during those 10 years for a large part of it, not able to walk. And it looked really like that was never gonna change. Um, Ruth and I, my wife and I got married in 2003 so kind of in the midst of that whole experience and we have a really strange kind of dating and marriage story i wasn't well enough to go to our own wedding reception um i didn't take her out for a date until we'd been married for about two years so we have a really unusual kind of background but anyway in that summer of 2008 it was we had kind of decided just to dive in and raise a family even though i was not well at all Um, And our second daughter was just in the process of arriving, our second daughter, Willow. And my health just went like right off the cliff at that point. And what what were you struggling with? Yeah, I mean, so um, my lungs collapsed um, in March um, 1998 and I just never recovered. Um, So even though the lung capacity came back, I had fever symptoms, balance problems, um, sleeplessness. I um, super low energy. I couldn't climb the stairs. I couldn't cut my own food at times. It was really bad. Um, and yeah, they they weren't able to kind of give a clear diagnosis. They put you through all kinds of, you know, is it multiple sclerosis? Is it X? Is it Y? And in the end, you just kind of fall out of the bottom of the diagnostic sieve as like, well, we don't know what you are, but it's not going away. So that's kind of where it was. How um, did you hang on? Well, yeah. I, I, um. I think in some ways for me as a Christian, that was really, that was the making of my my walk with God. I didn't come from a Christian home. I had become a Christian in my late teens, but I had loads of first principles kind of questions and all the way through university, although I was really like absolutely into it and really wanting to serve, I also had, I, I looked around me at all these people for whom faith seemed to come very easily and I just... I didn't feel like I was that person. You know, I, I was the person who was kind of standing under the shower in the morning thinking, is there really a God? You know, that was my kind of faith journey. Um, and what happened, you know, when I got sick, 
it was very you know it was very sudden i was i was doing well i was i graduated i, I had a great job working as a designer which was that was kind of always my vocation and i was sat at my desk one day and then boom you know just my lungs went down and i got rushed to hospital and um i think i i ran out of my own resources really fast um and that was i think a lot of people who you know if something really big happens this is a lot of people's experience um you kind of expect that you know well you're young and resourceful you're going to be okay but actually you know it's amazing how fast the wheels can come right off and i think i discovered through then just the it was a long and, and often a really kind of brutal experience but i think i just discovered there was no kind of epiphany where like god suddenly revealed himself and everything was perfect but i think all of the other sort of grass is greener scenarios that i had imagined and that i'd seen being played out among my secular friends they they just kind of withered under under the pressure of that that experience and god just didn't you know i he just kind of as the as the wow. as the flood flowed through my life and kind of washed away you know all of those other things in the landscape god just kind of emerged as a as a rock exactly as he says he will you know and his promises to me were true and i you know so you said, how did I hang on? I, I didn't really hang on. I think God hung on mm. to me. How did Ruth do through that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I met Ruth probably, the, the thing had some kind of peaks and troughs. Um, so about two and a half years in, I'd had to go back and live with my parents and, and, and leave London and kind of watch, you know, all of my friends kind of going on along that, that journey that we were all on together before. And, um, but I was able, I think this was kind of mid 2000, Coming up to 2001, a friend of mine in London very kindly offered me like a ground floor accommodation in his house. And I was able to creep back and be this kind of strange person who would just like, you know, I was able to do a little bit of work from the house and I was able to get to church, but literally like kind of walking up there with a little portable seat on my back so that I could sit when I needed to sit. And um, and so it was in that context where Ruth and I met. Um, and yeah, it's really... I, you know, it was an amazing, it was an amazing thing. We just, we, we really hit it off. Um, and she was just, she, she was and is an incredible person, an incredible Christian, you know, to be willing to kind of move towards someone who's clearly, you know, really the pro, I mean, anybody who knows me would know like the prospects were not that great, even fully healthy, but the prospects looked even worse than they, you know. Um, and, um, and yet she was, yeah, she was willing to kind of step into that with me. And I think we, we realized pretty quickly that we had, to make some important decisions about whether we were for real um because it was you know a big um yeah in that situation that you can't you know there's no scope for kind of messing around and Ruth needed to she I think before we ever even started talking about dating she had already really thought and prayed hard and spoken to her family about what it would look like to be married to someone who was never going to get well um, so she was. So, she's walking into marriage. Yeah, just she knew exactly. With the what she, assumption, she knew exactly what she was getting yes, into. Yes, with the yeah. assumption that you weren't even ever yeah, going to get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So that was yeah. That was our that was our thing. Yeah. So so then you move here in two thousand eight. Yeah. So basically, the in the summer of two thousand eight, kind of prompted really by complete desperation, with our second child just just having been born, and me really almost as low as I'd ever been health wise we were recommended there was a doctor who was doing something kind of experimental in a hospital in South London um, that was to do with people who've had kind of like um, catastrophic trauma situations, car accidents, you know, military mm -hmm. situations, sports injuries, um, where they've never, they've never fully recovered. Um, and 
he basically wanted to see whether actually my experience in hospital when when my lungs went down was basically that was the same thing and his diagnosis essentially was that you're still in the hospital your body is still there you see you still even though the, the crisis has passed you've not been able to escape from that situation and and he fixed me you know amazingly it was you know it was an answer to a prayer that i'd stopped praying like five years previously you know um you know we, we'd just kind of given up the, the thought that i would ever be well but really Although it took a long time for me because it was so much kind of muscle wastage and re having to relearn how to balance, you know, things like that. You wouldn't imagine that you had to do that. Um, but actually the underlying issue he was basically able to deal with very rapidly. And in God's providence, so basically what had happened, I had the, the design company where I worked had been very patient with me and I've been able to do some stuff remotely but as time went by they basically I I had more responsibility bizarrely because I was looking after several clients from this mm -hmm. kind of strange you know bedridden stroke armchair ridden situation and um, when my health went really down in the summer of 2008 they said look we can't do this anymore like this is too unreliable it's game over so I've been we have been thinking and praying and looking for what next and I'd signed up to to go to seminary in the states because we were thinking well maybe like a wheelchair professorship is the future <laughs> we we long to be involved in ministry yeah. i had been pouring myself into my kind of walk with god during those years and i'd written a book and i'd had you know i, I really felt like god had been working and investing in me so you know i really wanted to put it to use so um i had this seminary place all lined up and as soon as i got well it was like wow okay i can i can actually be part of the solution to how we fund this and so with my design credentials in my back pocket, I started putting out some feelers and I, I got hired for a short term assignment at Zondvan Hopper Collins in Grand Rapids. So the thing that brought us here was that. So I came here, we, we literally we put everything that we owned in a crate and sent it down to the seminary in Florida. Um, and it was bobbing on the ocean while we were coming over here to, to Grand Rapids. Um, and yeah, we arrived in, in the January of, of 2009 with our two little daughters. And we still we that's a that's like a standing stone moment for us that the eighth of January two thousand nine, because we arrived at Chicago Airport and they basically said you can't come in. There was there were problems with our visa and we we got put in that part of the airport which is for the like the undesirables soon to be returned to their place of origin, and um, Ruth and me and our two little daughters you know two and six months old. And we weren't even allowed to like pick up a phone and phone the person who was waiting for us outside. And we were there for two or three hours. And it just felt like everything was right in the balance at that moment. We'd rented out our house. We'd sold our car. We were like 15,000 pounds in debt to my parents for just getting over here, unable to earn until we actually got into the States. And we just called out to him and said, okay, I think you are literally the only being in the world who knows where we are right now. Um, would you help us? Um, and it feels like everything since then, since January 2009, has been an answer to those prayers. So I think it just keeps you really in mind of God's grace. You know, on Sunday we were talking about that diagram with everything that you have is wow. is a gift from God. I think that's a palpable reality for us as a family. You know, we're really aware He's brought us to the end of ourselves in many ways several times, um, and um, the the great blessing of that in retrospect is not it's not great at the time. But the great blessing in retrospect is knowing that everything that you have comes from him. So, Wow. Yeah, I was really moved. If you weren't here on Sunday, Neil had this phenomenal graph where there's an X and Y axis. And he drew a line across the screen and said, this is how we view normal life. And we normally see these little ticks of blessings going up or curses going down. But with every blessing in our life, that line of normalcy increases so that anything less 
then that now becomes a curse. You've lived that. You've yeah. you've learned that through yeah, the yeah. hard knocks of yeah. real suffering in life. And so have you, Nate. I mean, you've walked through your own season of deep suffering um, and specifically as it regards to the medical world. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's probably uh, a road or a journey that everyone will walk down if they haven't already. <clears throat> so I remember, I mean, I, th- I think uh, what you're referring to, Trig, like our our youngest yeah, yeah, yeah. son, Psalm, uh, for those that maybe don't know, uh, was diagnosed with some severe congenital heart defects. Um, and yeah, it was... A difficult season, but I remember even before uh, this season in our life, I remember Jan and I talking, this is probably maybe five or six years ago now, and feeling like we had lived this life of immense blessing. Like, if we really take account of our lives, it seems like most things have gone well by all accounts, if you look at, like, the spreadsheet, right? Mm-hmm. And and I just think I think I felt this, not impending doom, but this expectation that there may come a season where things are not all well. And really that's ultimately the time when faith gets to show up. And if we talk about the flood, we talk about rising waters. I love this picture that I think God graciously gave us during that season, which was, you know, you're building this house. The Bible has this picture of building a house uh, on the rock or on the sand. And the thing about building a house on either of those foundations, they can seem both quite sturdy in times of peace and tranquility, but it's only when floodwaters rise, when storms hit, that actually things start to become, yeah, a little chaotic. Uh, And so this picture of going down to the footings of your house to see actually what you have been building on. And it's those seasons of storm that you see like, okay, has this actually been built on something stable, something secure? And so, I mean, how can you not certainly grieve the, like you talked about on Sunday, Neil, um, the times when it feels like we're just maybe less blessed uh, the reality of the pain and suffering of this life, but also um, for us, it was like, how can we not celebrate the reality that God has us? Like you talked about on the rock, that he is sustaining us and that without him, wh- what am I going to just rely on myself in those times? Like, I know that I I can't hold it together. So uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things, walking the, the life after Christ is that inevitably we will all experience suffering and pain um, and and so just different seasons, we get to kind of shout with great joy and jubilation that in our weakness, when we feel like we have nothing left to give, nothing left to hold on to, that we can celebrate that God is holding on to us. And when people look at our lives in moments of suffering and see something beautiful or inspiring, we can just turn around and say, like Paul, blessed be to God, in my weakness, his, his uh, power is made perfect. And so, yeah, that's part of our story, too. What do you think it is about the Christian worldview that has a unique way of not just providing hope, but strength for a person to get through suffering? I mean, I think the unique thing about it is that God is actually alive. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, when it comes right down to it, when you are when you are completely at the end of your resources and you reach out your hand for help, if there's nothing there to put it in, mm. you are, you're lost, you know, and... I think there are sufferings that come and just you know things that are part of the normal experience of human existence which will just push us beyond mm-hmm. what our resources are capable of sustaining and I think that can happen in many different situations but I think I mean my kind of favorite word picture for this you know if you imagine you're a local branch of a bank 
um, and someone comes into the bank and says, you know, normally the, the normal day-to-day transactions of the bank, someone will come in and say, I want to cash this check for $1,000 or whatever. And you say, yes, ma'am, here I am. Like, you know, <laughs> let me help you. But imagine one day someone comes into the bank and says, I want to cash a check for $100 million. And you just say, we just don't have $100 million. Like we don't, we don't have a tenth of that. Um, and um, it leaves you, you have, to, you have to make a call to head office at that point. And, um, and I think that that is, our, that is our situation in life. Suffering sometimes will come to you and it will try to cash $100 million of, of resources out of your life. And you just don't have it. And if you don't have somewhere, as you reach out your hand to give that thing to your suffering, the other hand has to go up and, and trust that something's going to come from somewhere. And if there's no somewhere, that there's you are lost in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I think Nate said it really beautifully that, you know, it, it is what Paul said in that moment when someone then looks at you and says, well, how are you coping with your sufferings? Like, I'm really not. Like, I'm a conduit here. What you're watching is the resources of God coming to me and I'm just literally giving to this suffering what I'm receiving on an hour-by-hour basis. Um, and so that's, yeah, definitely our testimony since that's mm. Nate's testimony as well. Mm. Yeah, so what I'm hearing too is one of the unique aspects from your point of view uh, about the Christian worldview is that we can actually look at suffering and be honest about it. Yeah. Which that's actually freeing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. we don't have to pretend. We don't have to yeah. live in pretense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very briefly, how'd you end up at Crossroads? You walked in these doors at some point. Where Was it at Walker at the time? It was. Yeah, it was a walker with the weird wildcat on the wall. Yes, living um, in infamy forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> those were great days. I've got, I've got such kind of happy memories of that. Um, yeah, I was, I was working at Zondervan. Initially, we thought it was just going to be like this six to nine month short term contract and then down to join our belongings in Florida. Um, but um, yeah, one way or another, at, on the work side of things, um, it was just a golden season. It was really amazing, like having been lifted up out of this kind of, you know, long, long time of waiting and, and you know, feeling like that certainly from a professional perspective that I wasn't able to contribute that much. Suddenly, like God lit this thing up and with a with a small team of other really great people at Zondvan, we, we, we were able to do some really amazing things. And it kind of culminated in being asked to take on the update of the NIV Bible in 2011. And um, so I, I stayed to lead that project here, and I'm um, basically kind oh, of you let it. I punted my seminary um, plans till till later. Um, so yeah, things were kicking off on the work front. I was flying all over the place, and it was just amazing. I think I'm really grateful to God that He just He lifted us up and put us in a completely new situation. Nobody here really knew the background, and so there was no one saying like, "Nearly you okay? Like, is everything going to be all right?" And that was a really great way to actually be okay and to be all right because I was just I was living. It was a it new was, life almost. Yeah, it really. I I just feel you know I'll. I'll the Bible has so much to tell us, doesn't it, about kind of regeneration. And I just generally <laughs> felt like I was kind of living parable of what regeneration really felt <laughs> new like. New country, new yeah, body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ruth, yeah, Ruth, a new husband for Ruth. You know, it's kind yeah, of like super weird. She got a new too. Um, so, um, but yeah, so um, Rob Monticelli, who was at Zondervan with me, um, invited me to come to Crossroads and we just loved it right from the start. We jumped straight in with Rod preaching on kind of Abraham and then the God of the City series that I alluded to on Sunday. And I honestly, I've I've never been so kind of just gripped by the teaching of God's word. I'm really, really thankful for those days. I can remember large sections of those sermons almost word for word. And it's kind of like massively shaped my sense. And it kind of made sense, I guess, of a lot of our Christian experience up to that point. And there were some really, really significant moments along the way there. 
Um, I remember I, I bumped into Rod at like a, a garage, uh, like a cookout thing that, uh, that was happening in the in the Walker car park, I think. Um, parking lot, that is. Sorry, let me just yes. get, my, get my American vocabulary back. Um, and we just realized that we had a load of stuff in common in terms of the people that we were reading and our concept of God's kingdom and what that all looked like. And so he asked me to give my testimony in the church and to tell a little bit about what had happened. And obviously it was all very, very fresh at that time. And um, and then shortly after that, he he said, well, why don't you have a shot at, at preaching for us? Um, yeah, and I just... Was that your first time preaching? Pretty much, yeah. So I had been, when I was a student, <laughs> I remember the pastor of the church in Cambridge where I was had said to me, like, you ought to think about Christian ministry. And all the way through those years, that had stayed with me. And I guess I had been really intentionally preparing for that through the years of illness, mm. reading and studying and trying to teach myself how to teach the Bible. Um, but I had never kind of like, it, it was, yeah, what, what probably 13 years after that pastor at, at university said to me, you ought to think about Christian ministry, that in completely on the other side of the world, it was Rod who said to me, look, you know, will you will you come and preach for us? Um, and um, I remember, yeah, standing up that first sermon and, and preaching, I preached a Bible overview. I preached like the entire story from beginning to end. And it was just, it was such a, there are still people I know in this congregation who remember that occasion. Um, and it was just, it was a really sweet in all kinds of ways. I mean, you can imagine having come out of what we come out of. Um, you know, I, I still feel actually I was really moved by this even just this last Sunday. I, I was in that armchair for so long that I can still feel like the fabric of it under my fingers. I can feel like what it what it felt like to sit there and just just study, but basically be immobile. And to stand up to preach, to feel like, wow, just to be able to physically stand in front of these people is an amazing gift from God. So um yeah, so that was kind of the beginning of our crossroads journey. Um, and yeah, um, when the, when the NIV came out in 2011, the elders here very kindly and graciously invited me to be the associate pastor of the church, very much more in, you know, kind of hope than that actual re realization of any present gifts. I think they were l looking to the future in faith. Um, and they gave me the chance to go to Calvin and kind of fill in all the many gaps in my kind of self-directed theological education and get myself an MTS there. So yeah, so that that was three years then of serving here at the church and then studying down the road. And they were just sweet, sweet years. And um, yeah, really, really benefiting from, I, I mean, I've, he's not here so I can embarrass him, but you know, a massive shout out to Rod. There aren't that many kind of people in Rod's situation who would give as much time and, um, and share their ministry as much as Rod shared it with me. You know, we were in a situation where the church had just stepped onto two campuses, North Point as well as Walker. And um, the two of us used to share our sermon series. So if we were preaching through, I don't know, Ephesians or something, like Rod would take the first little chunk of it and he'd do that at Walker. And then the next week he would take that to North Point and I'd come back with the second sermon in the series and do it at Walker. So we were literally like dependent on one another. So we were in... And we're, we're so radically different. Rod is like this kind of like locker room, kind of uh, sports coach kind of, you know, personality. And I'm, I guess, much more kind of cerebral in the way that I present. But underneath with our, our vision of it is so similar. And our sense of the riches and the depth of the text and how we study is really, really similar. So it was just, a, I don't know, I... I felt for the congregation, it was like kind of whiplash every week, like kind of going from one to the other extreme. But um, yeah, for, for us, it, those were sweet, sweet days. Yeah, no, that's good. I love it. And so, Nate, when you met Neil, that was when? 
I'm trying to remember what the year was. Um, I mean, Crossroads is is unique in that it's a a large church, but sometimes feels more intimate than maybe uh, you would recognize on a given Sunday. Especially even now, as we sit in the round, it feels like it's intentional that we know each other, we see each other. <clears throat> so I had known of Neil and seen him, yeah. in the sense of from the platform and teaching. And we had done; he had been teaching a ministry training course, so we were a part of that as well. But to really know him, I remember Jan and I were uh, a part of a friend's wedding, and Neil was officiating it. It was up on the lakeshore up in Frankfurt or something, I think. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was uh, I think, the rehearsal dinner that we happened to just sit at a table, Jan and I and Neil, and just kind of started a conversation beyond just the quick hello, whatever that happens on a Sunday. Um, so that's, I think, where the relationship first started. And then just over the time of being a part of the community, you need to get to know people. Uh, just by proximity and time. Um, and so just getting to know Neil and Ruth. And we really didn't know your kids even that well while you were here. Um, but the relationship, I think, was was substantial enough that when Neil moved back to England, um, that we kept in touch and, you know, things grew from there and stuff. So And you spent a little bit of time over there. Yeah, right? so that that's kind of the, I think, what really pushed us more into the space of, of knowing each other truly as friends. Um, not only doing life together, but ministry together. So, yeah, Neil, when when did you move back? 2013? We moved back 2014. 14, okay, yeah. So, Neil, you can maybe speak about this too, but moved back to um, to get his PhD at Oxford, which is No wild. big deal, you know. Uh, do you know John Lennox? I do. Yeah, like, do you know him know, personally? I don't know him personally, no, okay. but, yeah, but I, yeah, he's in Oxford. So. And yeah. the thing about Oxford is, is that it's 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 not that big of a city. I mean, it's big in the sense of how it impacts the world, but like, what would be a comparison here? Like, Holland? I mean, it's so walkable. It's like you know, so like if you're there for a length of time as a student, or you can you kind know, of see it all. Yeah, yeah, you start to get to know people in rounds, and especially the circles that Neil runs. Like you know, they people interact and stuff. Um, but yeah, so you went moved back, and then uh, Neil was a part of a church there, and there was a need for, from what I remember, worship leading and uh, helping to serve in that capacity, and so. Um, I moved, Jana and I moved uh, with our three kids at the time in 2015 um, and spent a year together uh, in Oxford with Neil and Ruth and um, all four of their kids at the time. Your youngest two, your boys were born here, right? They were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then, uh, so that's, I think, where, you know, the relationship was even more established, obviously doing ministry side by side. And then for us, it was just a year. If, if you've been a part of Crossroads for any length of time, somebody brought it up recently and kind of made a joke about it. It wasn't intentional, I think, that I, I, I made some kind of pun of this, but we had a website called The Englishes in England yeah. in the sense of just like talking about our ministry and like helping to raise support and stuff. And they're like, oh, that was very memorable. And we're like, yeah, I, guess. yeah. I wasn't trying to like, you know, like <laughs> make some kind of sweet, uh, you know, it's your promo. Personal, it's your personal brand. The, yeah, the yeah. personal brand. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, did that and yeah. then just stayed in touch even after we came back home and yeah. it's been really sweet. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, we, we, neither of us will probably kind of linger here, but that brought us both into a shared season of really acute suffering, actually. Yeah. Amen. And I think probably both of us would say that in some ways, just as difficult as some of the other things that we've been through with, you know, experiences with health and yeah. suffering with those that we love. Um, because the church that I was part of was, it was a mess. Um, and we found ourselves like, for, I just didn't have any kind of mental or, or experiential dashboard for what, what was happening. And it was a, you know, a really tough experience. And it, even though we had, we, 
I had this great kind of aspiration for Nathan and Jana that they would come and we would be able to partner together. And I had been thinking like crossroads days and how sweet that had been and that kind of sense of partnerships. And the church here had been such a model of what it looked like just for straightforward, brotherly, easy relationships. But I think for both of us, that was just a realization that actually it's not always like that. And church can be a really messed up place as well as a really sweet place of kind of brother and sisterhood. And so we went through that together. Um, and um, it's actually been, you know, a, a journey for us and a really, yeah, despite the pain, a really sweet journey to try to reestablish that connection in the years since then. So Nate led this trip over to Oxford this summer um, with a group and it was just absolutely awesome. It was, God was so good to us, <laughs> yeah. but it was awesome, not just for the fact that it was a really great group who yeah. were really switched on and God was really working by his spirit, but it was great just to feel like we were able to kind of finally do some of the stuff that yes. together yeah. as brothers that we had, had planned and longed to do. And we were able to get that kind of just connectedness together. Whereas before things had just been, um, yeah, we, we'd been, we'd been dealt a really yeah. tough set of cards the first yeah. time around by the, the larger kind of political environment in which that yeah. church was operating. What did you learn about yourself and about your faith in that season? Oh my goodness. Or maybe yeah. I'll put it this way. How, how would you encourage someone today that is, finds themselves in a church context where they see things and they go, this is not the way it sh should be. Can I speak on that? Yeah, you know, go, maybe while you kind of gather it. your thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, just like Neil described, the way Jana and I speak of it, if and when we speak about it, is that it was probably one of the best years of our lives and also one of the worst years of our lives. And those two things happen at the same time. Yeah. So one of the worst years of our lives, I mean, certainly there's, there's a lot of things there. And yeah, you don't have to go into details. Right. But the just... best thing was is that much like suffering in the physical, suffering maybe in the spiritual sense, <clears throat> you just come to the end of yourself, you come to the end of a dark road, and you realize that there's someone there at the end of the dark road. Mm. And that's Christ. He's always been there. He's waiting. You're never actually alone in a space where you feel misunderstood or you feel at the end of yourself and you're just crying out, crying out. Christ is is there awaiting you to walk beside you. And I think, so for us, Jana and I, we just fell more and more in love with Christ. And that sounds obviously very like Christian 101, but in a practical, very real sense, it's just the truest description of what happened for us. So much so that, kind of like what Neil spoke of, you know, years before someone had kind of planted in him this idea or this thought of maybe pursuing ministry in some context at some time. Years before in our lives for Jana and I, that seed had been planted. And we, it was not a Jonah story where I was like, absolutely not. I'm running in the opposite direction. I will never do that. I think I just, I just said, Lord, I feel called to a lot of different things. There's a lot of things that I love. Would you just, if you desire for us to pursue vocational ministry, to pursue this in some capacity, would you just make it clear? And so uh, that year was God doing just that. Mm. And what I mean by that is all of the possible, like, I don't know the word, facade, or when we look at church world, or if we're sitting in a congregation and we look at staff at a church, or we look at ministry, we look at a platform, someone speaking from a platform, uh, we see maybe the the honor and the um, the esteem that is given unto them, right? There, there can be this sense that like, wow, that that's a, a role of honor. That's a, a, a 
a privileged role where people um, appreciate you, look up to you. Um, you're in a helper role. You know, you're a shepherd. All of these things. And so, for a long time, I was really scared of my own heart. That if I went into ministry, it would it would be to kind of glean a little of the glory off the top for myself. And what that year in Oxford taught me was that ministry at times will be green pasture, but other times it will be very lonely and it will feel like death. (laughs) And I think what God allowed me to see was, this is what the road will look like ahead of you if you choose to go down it. And by all accounts, in my own human like perspective, my own fleshly considerations, I would have run in the opposite direction as quickly as possible. I do not want to do that year again. And it's not that I'm seeking out that year or any year like it, but like I just saw like the the bottom of the barrel of what ministry can look like, the pain of it, and I just didn't want anything to do with it. And yet, Jan and I can testify that a peace that was beyond the boundaries of our understanding came over us, and we felt like the gift that God gave us was being able to see the whole landscape of ministry and even so feeling completely at peace that we should step into it. Yeah. So it's like seeing it with clear eyes, I think, is what the gift for me Dude, is. Dude, and you are faith. You are serving so faithfully here, man, and you've been such an encouragement to my life and Thanks, you pastored me in moments here, and I just want to thank you for yeah, man, it's sticking a joy. with it because it's from such a the, joy. From the other side of the Atlantic as well, I just it put the biggest smile on my face when I heard I was pulling for that, and I'm so, so glad that they, yeah, that Crossroads said, yeah, come on the team. Thanks, so, Neil. Yeah. Hello, you want to add anything there? Yeah, I mean, I think just for me, I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, it was it was it was a wreck for us. It nearly killed us. Um, you know, it took two years, I think, just to even like find the edge of the crater and begin to crawl out. You know, we 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 fled to we we were thrown out of that church. Um, went to another church, couldn't engage with anyone, didn't feel that we could talk to anyone because we we didn't want to have to say where we come from. So we went from being really engaged and re, you know and, and very much involved to a point where we were not involved at all you know i remember going away with some friends for something of something to do with our kids and you know a bunch of other guys who were in ministry i remember them sitting around a table like this over dinner and talking about their vision for preaching and i just remember feeling i have nothing nothing to say i have no vision for preaching i will, i don't think i will ever do it again you know um it totally shattered my confidence i I found myself in a situation where I would, I would have ideas of things to start and they would last like for a morning. And then by the time the afternoon came around, I was just like, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to do this. It's never going to be me. Um, you know, we were leafing through one way tickets to New Zealand, literally, you know, looking to try and get to a place where nobody knew us. Um, Ruth was scared to go out of the house, you know, so it was terrible. It was, it was really, really bad. Um, you know, we found it particularly, it was acutely hard that our family here at Crossroads were 4,000 miles away. And we felt, I'm sure that we were wrong about it, but we felt like the narrative was that we, you know, had, um, uh, you know, we'd, we'd gone there and for unexplained reasons, we had left the church. And we felt that people here were drawing their own conclusions from that. And that was just really, really heartbreaking because the, the time that we'd spent here had been such a rebirth, such a time of trust and brotherhood. And just to feel that that had been kind of infected in some way with the sense that we were like a damaged currency. I'm sure people didn't think that, but it's really hard not to think that when you're in that situation. So I think I just, in all of our journeys with all of our stuff with the illness, I'd still, I just didn't have the dashboard 
for the for the part of life that I think so many people experience where actually they just feel like I've got a whole load of things that I would love to just be able to seek help with, but I can't even open my mouth because I don't think that anyone would even begin to understand. Um, and so I think the main thing for me that came out of it was just that's actually, even though the winning of that has been just tremendously costly, but I think from a pastoral perspective, I think that, that, that that's really shaped me. You know, I I look out now if I'm preaching and I just, I, I see that that's probably what's going on behind the eyes for quite a lot of people. You know, the experience of trauma of being in a situation where literally you are having like waking up in the middle of the night, you know, flashback moments, you know, that's lots of people experience this kind of stuff, but I had never, I'd never been there. Um, and then I think just enduring gratitude, you know, um, you know, to, to good friends, Andy, my partner in ministry back in Oxford, was just awesome. I think that when you've been through a kind of abusive situation, you lose your sense of your own confidence in, in your judgment of, of the reality around you. Mm-hmm. And you just come around, come out of it thinking, maybe it was all my fault. Maybe maybe I'm awful. Maybe, like, maybe I really should just get out of the way because I'm the problem. And so to have other people step into it and say, yeah, you're a, you're an ordinary sinful individual, but the thing that happened to you was wrong. Like, you know, just for people to be, to be willing to be boldly stepping in and then, um, you know, for this door to have opened, it was very nerve wracking, I think, to step into the role at Oxford Press and Andy very gently, because I was doing a doctorate at the time, I was able to kind of hide behind my academics. And, you know, I was still very much involved with ministry, with student stuff all the way through it. Um, but I was able just to, very gently find my way back into into life as a pastor and in a church I, I mean I felt even this Sunday I felt I felt more like the person I used to be at crossroads than I have for a long long time but it's taken that long like this you know we we the 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 kind of like the final collapse of that episode happened in 2016 that's like seven years ago so just getting a sense of how long that takes to work its way out and also I think just an awareness you know that I said earlier on that you know this thing about as you as as life asks you to you know pay out that check for a hundred million dollars and reaching up and out for help. Um, really, this is the place where I've learned that illness taught me that kind of. But this is the place where I've because to forgive, particularly for someone who shows no inclination to actually no understanding of even what they did. Mm. How how do you forgive someone who it's probably not you know you don't feel safe to engage with, but still you want to have a posture of wishing them the best. The only way that you can do that, 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 there's nothing within myself, certainly, that even wanted that, let alone have the resources to give it. And so the progress that we've been able to make along that path has all been about reaching up and out to God for help. And then also, I think just, you know, that it, it sowed so much confusion and difficulty into really solid relationships and just the journey of of watching those actually grow and, and become better and stronger. You know, Nathan and I, I think it's a sweet thing that we now share that we've been through that experience of really profound wounding and have yeah. been basically put in a situation where we were kind of, we, we were forced to misunderstand one another almost by the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And then to try and work through that, it's taken a long time, but it's been really sweet to be able to work on that together. And I genuinely think, you know, one of the things that's really striking is that in our modern world, we are obsessed with the new and the shiny. You yep. know, if someone offers you like, would you like, a new car, or would you like this beaten up, many times repaired secondhand car? You would always say, oh, I'd like the new car. But I genuinely think God prefers 
the the beaten up secondhand but much repaired one because in that much repairing is an expression of incredible love and kindness from him to us as he repairs us and then as we offer forgiveness to one another there's something there's a love from nate to me and me Mm -hmm. to him that we would never have seen if we hadn't had to cross that kind of chasm of misunderstanding and difficulty and so that's a really sweet thing that's redemption actually at work um so yeah i'm i'm grateful for that i same thing that nathan said i never would have chosen it but i uh, am i far enough through it yet to say that Mm. i that i wouldn't have missed it Mm. maybe almost Mm. (laughs) yeah praise be to god i mean what an amazing testimony and i think that that's i love that we even started there because on the surface your faculty at Oxford University. You're yeah. a pastor, pastor at Oxford Presbyterian Church. Uh, God's doing amazing things. You're the director of Be Less Ministry. You're you've you've you headed up the new NIV translation. Like so, on the surface, if we you know we're such a resume. Have you heard of David Brooks? No. Um, oh, he's a writer for the New York Times, but he talks about eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. Mm-hmm. That we live in a culture that is constantly working on our resume virtues mm-hmm. when the only thing that will really matter is the types of things that are, will be said about us and our eulogy. And I think what I'm hearing in those these types of stories is that God has led you through some incredible mountains and valleys, but the valleys are the things that have actually shaped you to put you in a position to have the powerful ministry that you now have in the situation that you have because you have learned through that suffering. Yeah, and I think, th- um, I mean, that's the reason why this little charity that I run is called Be Less, right? You know, um, so... Yeah. Um, we we don't actually want that, and, we, and for the people that we work with, we don't want that resume kind of like the long list. That's not going to help anyone. It's certainly not going to help the person who possesses it. You know, we live in a city. Oxford is kind of like the quintessential be more city. Like it's always about what's the next degree you're going to get, what's the next book you're going to publish, what's the next hill you're going to climb. But ultimately, like real life won't allow you to continue along that journey in the end. Like you will come to the moments where the wheels will come off. Uh, yeah. How do you see people handling that type of, because that's, Oxford is a microchasm of, in a way of it, what you're describing of mm-hmm. the American culture right now, right? You need to be more, do yeah. more, say more, yeah. read more, yeah. write more. Yeah. And it's the rat race never yeah. ends yeah. and people are utterly exhausted. Do yeah. you see that? same exhaustion yeah i mean Um, it's very biblical isn't it i mean so for me that's i mean you're going to get to it in your sermon series pretty soon and with rod at the wheel you're going to have a great time when you reach genesis 11 so the babel story i got it you got it great okay so the babel story is (laughs) sorry guys you gotta put up with me yeah you gotta put up so the babel story is is that there's a reason why that's kind of the climax of that narrative that comes out of the fall is just to say look ultimately that's what we're left with when we say that we want to be god we want to be like god ultimately that leads us trying to like to build some tower to the heavens in order to make a name for ourselves and we end up confused yeah so jr tolkien i think captures this really really well when he says look when humanity said to god look we, we want to be like you knowing good and evil when we reach out for that crown of deity ourselves and put it on our heads the problem is that that crown of deity weighs 10,000 tons. Like if for a moment, if you put that on your head, it will kill you, it will crush you to death. It feels so appealing, it's kind of glittering and we, we feel like we want that control. But no human being can really endure 
the thing that we think it is that we want. And it's for our own yeah. good that God, that, that he, he confuses the language of the people of Babel because he doesn't want them to kill themselves by, you know, by trying to be this thing that's totally unattainable, you know. Um, so I just think, you know, being less is actually, it's good for us. It's great. It, the thing for us that we need is for Christ to be all, for us to serve him joyfully with all of these amazing gifts and opportunities that he's given us. That's the place of true freedom. So, um, yeah, it's a real privilege for me kind of being within that city to be trying to kind of initiate this sort of underground movement to say, hey, actually, maybe this entire culture is just it's going in a self-destructive direction. The thing that we should be is seeking to be invisible, you know, seeking to just just to serve, to wash feet, you know, to let others take the credit and to be happy about it when they do. You know, that's that's what it looks like to be a Christian and that's freedom. So, Would you say, Neil, also like in the context of Oxford, the many avenues for ministry and opportunities to really speak into young adults, especially students' lives, I mean, for probably the vast majority of their lives, the students that show up at Oxford have been the most yeah, yeah. in every aspect of their world. Yeah. They've been the best. Yeah. They have been the 1% or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden they descend upon a city where everyone shares mm -hmm. their same oh, unique yeah. perfection. Yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. And so this, this concept of I've had to be more, I've had to be the best. And now I'm just run of the mill because yeah. everyone here is the best of the yeah. world yeah. as far as academia, yeah. Yeah. thought, and and so this this opportunity to share the freedom of saying actually to be less is is there's a freedom there like well yeah and that's why pride never works. I remember Tim Keller came to Wheaton one time or, or a few times while I was there, but uh, he used this illustration of you know, pride requires not that we're just better, but that we're better than somebody else. And so you could be the best concert uh, cellist in your, is that how you say it? Yeah. yeah. yeah cellist right. in your city. Um, but it, if you get off the train in New York City, you're, you're immediately surrounded by a hundred people that are better than you. And then what do you do if your identity is rooted in the fact that you're you know, you have to constantly shift environments just to ha find some sense of sec security so it doesn't work. Yeah. And that, speaking of not working, that was uh, something that I was really encouraged about last night at the elective that you um, shared on about what is good about the Bible in a secular world. And one of the things that you shared was that we have to understand how these worldviews actually don't work. These secular worldviews, when 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 they're fleshed out mm -hmm. into uh i think maybe you could probably do a better better way of describing it. i'm trying to remember but that there's actually only one universal worldview that works for for every situation in life and that's christianity and we have to be able to learn how to explain that yeah i mean i guess the the point that i was trying to make i mean i think I would encourage us as Christians just to be, it feels like a massive bar for us to say like, oh, Christianity is the one worldview in the world that, you know, that kind of explains every situation because it feels like it puts us on some kind of pedestal that we can't justify. I don't think we have to be able to perceive that or to be able to argue for that in order to persuasively, helpfully engage with our secular neighbors. But I think the thing which is really helpful there is just recognizing, look, in order to be someone who's living within the there are so many different secular kind of narratives out there yeah. but in oxford you know we see a whole kind of soup of it um that, are, that the students that i meet that the people that we meet who are coming and kind of inquiring and interested in in church that they're forced to adopt 
quite different versions of themselves depending on which set of circumstances they face because the particular thing that they're kind of engaging with is only good for a certain kind of aspects. So, you know, if they're if it's the part of them that's really passionate about cause, then the framework that they have is very much kind of fitted to that. But as soon as you then ask them, well, like, where do you think you come from or what's your purpose in life or whatever, they would say, well, I don't come from anywhere. I don't have any purpose. I'm just like, I'm just a collection. Of and yet atoms. they're extremely passionate yeah, about and so, these things. Yeah. And so those two things don't belong in the same life. Like, how could you say that you're really, you're passionate enough about something to want to persuade someone else to come with you when actually underlying that you really believe that you're just an accident and that that passion is just something that's happening to you, but you didn't really choose it. It's just, it's completely kind of passed to you by your circumstances or your genes or your society. And there are so many conflicts like that within the secular world. I think it just leaves people really kind of restless. They 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 feel like they're always having to kind of stitch together the the unstitchable. And so however hard and challenging being a Christian might be, and it is, I mean, we've shared some of the of things like being a Christian is yeah. no no like easy ride. But there is that fundamental rest of just saying like all of it resolves into this coherent personality of of Jesus. Of course. Yeah, um, and it's not about holding up a trump card or saying I'm better than you because yeah. I have all the right answers. Mm. But one of the things that really ministered to me yesterday is you said, you know, a lot of people that are atheists like to point at Christianity and say, well, that worldview is just far too exclusive. And you said something along the lines of, well, okay, let's take just for example the basic secular premise, which is that the good life is one in which you achieve your dreams, you pursue your passions. And then you said something along the lines of, well, how many people are actually able to do that in this world? So it might be a dream for them, maybe 5% yeah. in a good city yeah, in the West. yeah. What about the person in Ukraine that's in a war-torn city there? What about the refugees yeah. in Northern Africa right now fleeing the Middle East? Do they have a hope in this world? What about the person with cancer? What about the person that's been bedridden for 10 years? And that actually Christianity is much more broad at being able to give hope and purpose to the litany of human experiences that rather than being exclusive it's actually very inclusive of all people yeah and actually i think there's a real lesson there just for for us as christians being able to try and really live into the experience of our secular neighbors and try and like walk a mile in their spiritual and mental shoes because if you it's easy to feel like, oh my goodness, my faith is so exclusive. Maybe that just means that it's wrong. Maybe it's just my own little, it's, it belongs in my own little private village, my own little Christian bubble here in the Bible Belt, but it's not going to work as soon as I look on the global scale. Um, and you think, oh, well, secularism is kind of like the, you know, the answer. It's a global philosophy, you know. Um, but actually, as soon as you really step into that world, you realize that it's got this brutal, exclusive edge to it that, you know, what makes your life significant, as you said, is, you know, achieving all of these dreams. And I just think getting used to that practice of being able to step into the shoes of our secular neighbors and just ask ourselves, hey, let's just work that through. Where would that lead me? Would that really work? Um, and seeing that it's not actually as great as it seems. And I just think a, a real encouragement that I would want to give to people listening to this, you know, from our from our Oxford world, from our British world, where I guess, I mean, you guys are facing all kinds of like cultural pressures right now. So it's not as if it's kind of, you know, like it's it's easier here. I don't think that it is, but I think we're, we're maybe, we've been doing it for longer. <laughs> um, and so secularism is kind of more bedded in and is more like the majority vision and has been for a long time in our culture. But actually speaking from that place where it is more established, actually the cracks are really 
not just beginning to show, they're kind of yawning open. Um, so I shared last night something which is really striking to me is just how really in the last five years, I think, that, that kind of militant atheist, of course God is dead, of course he's a delusion, like what are you thinking of? It's just disappeared. I just don't see that among our students at all because they just perceive it to be the arrogance that it is. You know, so in our city, people talk about intellectual colonialism, this idea that people you know, love that word right yeah. now. Colonialist. Um, yeah, yeah, and and but it's what it is, you know. So intellectual colonialism oh, yeah. is marching into other people's experience and just saying, "I'm telling you what you're experiencing and what you're thinking." And it's like, no, you're not. Like, you know, <laughs> don't don't come and tell me that atheism makes sense of my experience. It may make sense of yours, but that may be your problem, not my problem. You know, and I so I think people are really reluctant to just be given these kind of big package solutions. So that doesn't necessarily mean that people are flocking into the churches. You know, that we've got like revival is breaking out. Oxford Press, although it's growing, which is exciting. Um, but Praise what it God. but what it means is that we live in a society, I think, where you would just say it's I don't think it is necessarily an atheistic society. I just think it's a conflicted society. I think the whole idea of conviction is really problematic in a mature secular context. People are not able to be sure about anything. Um and the thing that's exciting about that is that, you know, that the gospel has thriven in those kind of environments in the past. That's the kind of environment that you find yourself in when you step into, you know, the world of the New Testament. Um, you know, yeah, it's so not, let's go there real quick. Because yeah, yeah. I know there's a lot of people that are really frightened by the way that the world is shifting, especially, mm. you know, we're in West Michigan, right? Yeah. Jerusalem, we're supposed yeah. to be yeah, yeah. a safe haven for yeah. the gospel. And yeah. yet we see, uh, we see shifting happening. Mm all over the place and people at times are afraid and uh how might they be encouraged that their world is actually not that different in fact maybe even more uh nurturing to the gospel yeah. than the environment that god was calling his people his very disciples to step into in the first century yeah i mean i don't think there's anything much to, okay what's the not right not to sense? be comparative because yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. we all have our own issue yeah. we all have our own struggles yeah. and I mean, I don't, I don't want to be insensitive about it, but if, you know, if we're mourning a world in which Christianity is kind of like a culturally accepted norm so that you can go to church in order to find a husband or a wife or to make yeah, a business yeah. deal or something like that, and it's just the thing that you do and it's the thing that your parents did and your grandparents did, but it's not actually like making a radical visceral difference to your actual experience. That there's nothing there that you would really want to hold on to. Like that's actually obscuring the gospel. That reality, that that vision is obscuring the gospel, isn't it? So if you think about in in the the world of the New Testament in the in the first century, that's not what it looked like at all. But the gospel grew and exploded in an environment which was radically individualistic, radically pluralistic. You know, something which just had no no place at all for you know Christian concepts of you know, God being, you know, f for the least and the lost and all this kind of stuff that just didn't make any sense whatsoever. And yet that's the environment in which the real good news of the good news was able to be seen clearly. So, you know, it's tough watching like great kind of glory days for the gospel, maybe. I don't, I don't want to say fading, but kind of like that they were for their time and in their era and that era is no longer our era. But it doesn't mean that there can't be great days in the present and in the future you know, we're not restricted just to the set of tools that work for us in the middle of the 20th century. As if like, that's all the gospel's good for. It, it can do a good job of ministering to that kind of society, but no other society. Actually, the, 
through history, the places where the gospel has really run free and God has done great things has, has generally been in cultures which are much more angular and difficult and awkward for Christianity. So, you know, in some ways, even though it's it's Christianity on a war footing in Oxford right now and um, you know, we're we're a we're a minority and to be identified as a Christian is to kind of like stick a big sticker on your forehead saying I've committed intellectual suicide. That's how it would be seen in Oxford. But actually that's a great start point from which to have authentic people conversations. Have to with be people. curious about that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Do people ever yeah. approach you and legitimately think like there must be something wrong with mm. this person? Yeah, I've had it literally. So in the in the ministry where we, so Nate's been involved in this. So, but we do this thing called the search. Um, so where we take over a coffee bar in the center of town on a Monday night and basically do a really. You wouldn't think this would work, but it works really well in a very secular environment. Just to literally let Jesus be seen for ten minutes, just show him at work and just pull out a few provocative things that Jesus is doing that are so contrary to the way that we think in our modern world, and then just let people discuss it on tables. But I've had students show up on those tables and say something like, well, I thought Oxford was an elite university. So what are you guys doing here? Like, how did you get in? You know, because their assumption is like to be a believer is to be like stuck in some kind of medieval fantasy. Like, you know, so, um, you know, did did you just sneak through the interview process and kind of not disclose that you're actually a complete loser? You know, um, so um, but the thing that's interesting is that they can be really um, uh shocked and surprised by the Christians that they do meet because actually in that kind of environment the sort of person who is going to say they're going to put their hands up to be yeah I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm I'm willing to stand for my faith in this difficult environment they will often be really thought through really switched on really sharp and it can shock you know someone who comes from that atheistic perspective to see that um, I think you know here in West Michigan maybe we're used to sadly used to the phenomenon of someone who has grown up in a Christian home, who's always believed that Christianity is right, who's always been told that this is the answer, who's never actually had to really think for themselves like why it's the answer or what even is the question that it's the answer to. Pack them off to college, first time sitting down in a basic kind of biology class or something, and like the pin just bang, but blows the whole thing away. And they suddenly just think like, well, my, my faith has just literally disappeared in front of my eyes because it's just so fragile that way. If you've never had the chance to build that resilience and actually see some of the stuff that we've been talking about, about the actual, the, the real solidity and gravity of Christian faith. But what we see now, which is fascinating, is exactly the reverse of that. So I've got students coming through our doors in Oxford who have grown up in atheistic households, in a completely atheistic culture, in the atheorusalem or whatever it would be you know the you know where 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 atheism is kind of like just totally assumed and the thing that's really striking put them in front of a convincing com, you know intellectually bright and able christian who's thought things through and that's the pin that burst their bubble and then they wake up in the morning thinking what if there is a god you know so um it's just there's nothing unique about christianity that makes it vulnerable in this kind of situation the issue with it is is that conviction itself is difficult and that it's difficult to be convinced that there's not a God as well as difficult to be convinced that there is. So what is good about the gospel in a place like Oxford? <laughs> and you, can you give us a story maybe of an unlikely person coming to faith that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, Jesus is good about the gospel in a secular society, Amen. just like he's been good about the gospel ever since he was first Amen. foreseen and foreshadowed in Genesis. Um, and it's it's our privilege to have the opportunity to point up to him and out to him um and yeah i think in terms of stories that's basically what you see um you know 
I can think of a student recently just in the last nine months who comes from a, just a completely atheistic environment at home, very gifted, able student who, who came up to Oxford. I first met him, he was already like 18 months into his time in the city and he had been going to the University Debating Society, listening to the best and brightest thinkers kind of pushing that atheistic message and basically just said, look, I just don't see it. I just, it just doesn't work. It's not capacious enough to actually deal with the, with the full range of experience. There are places where it seems really convincing, but other places where it just falls apart. There's got to be something better and more than this. Um, and he is very thoughtful and careful. So it's not just been like show up at a Christian meeting and give your life to Christ. Not at all. You know, there's been a whole process of conversation, of working, of, you know, of advance and then regress and advance and then regress. But we're in a situation now where he, um, yeah, I, I, I've been meeting him for coffee in the mornings for a long, for, you know, for months. Um, but most recently he was like, well, let, let's not meet in a coffee shop. Let's meet your house so we can pray. You know, um, wow. so, um, you know, hallelujah, that's, you know, hallelujah. that's happening. Um, so, um, yeah, um, that Jesus is still absolutely in business and active in a city like Oxford. And as you would have heard on Sunday, you know, our experience as a church has been this as well. You know, in a place that's absolutely sewn up for secularism, you know, where like our city council, our university have made it their absolute mission to squeeze Jesus out of the narrative. Last year, he just walked onto the street where our church building is literally in the center of the town and just basically said, right, I want that back. Boom. You know, so he's powerfully at work and active. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a for all of us, isn't it? It's just an honor to be foot soldiers in his mm -hmm. army. Amen. And so for people that weren't here on Sunday, let's talk about that, because this is unbelievable. Uh, real estate in Oxford is a high commodity and God miraculously has plopped a historic building that was once a church then wasn't a church yeah. and now is a church yet again yeah. into your laps how did that happen and what was that journey like and were you shocked episode two, were you Trey. shocked when it finally happened totally no, yeah yeah so um, yeah give people if let's say somebody wasn't here on sunday they would have no context mm. for what you're talking about yeah yeah what's up with the northgate northgate yeah. hall Okay, so first of all, I mean, if you've got, if you want to go there, it'll take a few minutes just to kind no, of develop okay. it. But um, yeah, so um, I mean, I think first of all, it just requires a little bit of context to grasp this, and Nathan could speak into this as well. Um, Oxford University is not like other universities, so it's not a campus. Um, you know, there, there's no there's no place like out of town where it's kind of like all the all the faculty buildings are. The university is the city. Like the two things are completely intermixed. And um, none of these students have cars. They all live right there in this kind of bubble in the center. And it's this incredibly intense experience. It's, we've alluded to it several times already. It's our kind of, along with Cambridge, our elite school. It's kind of sucking in the best and the brightest. And the expectation is that they're going to work super hard. Like university is a time. I've never worked harder than when I was at Cambridge. You know, it was 60, 70 hour academic weeks, you know, and then they're ex you're expecting to play hard as well as work hard all the way through. So, you know, they're crammed into this space. If you have a church that's like a mile out of the center in, in any other context, you would think, oh, well, that's great. Like we're in the city, you know, we're all good to go. If you're a mile out of the center in Oxford, you may as well be doing church in Venezuela. You know, like they just won't, they just won't come. It's not on their conceptual landscape at all um so the priority for a church plant if you're going to plant a church in the center is to is to somehow be in the center 
But the problem that you've got up is that that you've got to deal with is that every building that you could conceivably use to meet as a church has literally been kind of tied down for centuries. You know, that everything is owned either by the university or by the city council. You will get outside investors with really deep pockets mm-hmm. coming in and, you know, looking to build faculty buildings. And, and literally, I mean, it's amazing when it happens. Gradually, they will pick off property by property until they've bought up an area that's big enough to do the project that they want to do. And then when it starts, they will just, they'll move in and they'll dig a whole six stories down, just like get as much out of that postage stamp of real estate as they possibly can. And then they will build this thing like in the best possible materials, like, you know, absolutely you know, kind of like a glittering trophy to, you know, their their wealth and prestige. And we just, I could I could point to six or seven of these projects that have happened even during the decade that we've been in Oxford. It's an astonishing environment. But if you just think of yourself then, okay, so we're a little church plant, you know, we're interested in getting a property in the center of the city. It's like, no, no, you're not. That's not going to happen. Just forget it. And um, so that's always been the tension that on the one hand, our goal has been to be able to be in a situation where we can be a witness for Christ to the university, which means being in the centre, but also recognising the fact that from a human perspective, that basically looks like it's never going to happen. And and it's not just that it's never going to happen, it's, it's going in the other direction. So in the UK, we have lots of nice church buildings, you know, historic buildings. But the way that the thing is moving is that they're just hand over fist, bit by bit, just being converted to secular uses. Or they're being turned into mosques, you know, or um, spas or hotels or shopping complexes or, Breweries. you know, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, or fancy houses, you know, that's churches around the country are just kind of dropping like flies to that. So although if you came and visited Oxford, you would see this very churchy landscape. Actually, that's not what's happening. Behind those doors, there's a lot of university stuff, secular stuff happening kind of behind the historic kind of facade, the Christian facade of it. And it looked for all the world like it was never going to happen. I don't know whether you want to. Yeah, I mean, just being there this summer, I mean, it was profound standing in the building. And I think, yeah, probably on your website, there's different things for Be Less, um, you know, places where people can see what the building was just prior to, even during COVID. It was a, a restaurant, Bill's Restaurant, a, a restaurant chain in the UK. And uh, and just now to see, I mean, with the young adults that we were there, and you kind of gave us a tour of the space and kind of told us the history what was found in the basement, like all of these amazing things, like the history of the church. Um, you know, it's just, it's really, yeah, absolutely remarkable to stand there. I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm almost at a loss of so words. So where too. is it? Yeah. So the Northgate Hall is on... Um, right next to the, Mission Burrito. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's right next to the burrito place. And the coffee shop. And How does the fun. burrito place get a spot? That's what I want to know. So they rent it from Oxford <laughs> City Council. And they pay a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. You're eating a lot yeah. of burritos. So yeah. keep going. Um, and also, the yeah, in England, it's amazing how small a space you can get a burrito place into. You'd be amazed. So you, if you had a room the size of this one here, which is, I don't know, like 12 feet by 12 feet, that'd be good enough for a burrito place in Oxford. <laughs> you know, honestly, we make a lot out of a small space. So, um, yeah, but trying to find a place where you could seat 400 people, that just doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah, the, um, you know, the backstory to it was the, um, COVID. Um, we, Andy and I, as Andy's the pastor of the church, we, right from the get-go, we've been looking and praying and knocking on doors and getting lots of no's. Um, but always coming back to this building, the Northgate Hall, because it's literally like slap dab in the middle. If you had to put a pin on the center of gravity in the middle of Oxford, this is the place. It's right opposite the Oxford Union, which is the main university debating society. So like all of the big name speakers who come from all over the world, they're literally like 
15 yards away from this building. It's just an astonishing location. And that's partly the reason why it's then been so influential in the past. So, And re the reason why there's so much kind of like emotional investment in this particular place is that from the 1930s to the 1990s, it, it was built as a church and used by the Methodists initially. But then it became the base for the, for, like for the, the, the Oxford equivalent of intervarsity, kind of like the Christian ministry on the, mm. within the university. And in those years, this central place became like, like a beacon for, for for evangelicalism within the city and then also you know much more widely because it would just have like all of the you know the to the extent that we've had you know in britain influential evangelical figures john stott jr packer cs lewis martin lloyd jones they were all there like urging the students to come on and follow christ and hundreds of them did you know, so you get these stories of like, you know, on every morning they would be in there to pray. And then on Saturday nights, they'd all get together and the place would be absolutely crammed to the rafters with Christians. And they're all, there's some old like cine footage of them. They're all in their suits and their comb overs, you know, kind of like with their Bibles open, singing, belting out, and can it be as loud as you can imagine, you know. And um, so they're just hundreds of people converted in that space. You know, hundreds of people felt God's call to ministry or to go out to the mission field. We did an alumni event in there. One of the most moving things in this whole process is when the building reopened, we just did an open call to anyone who's got like good memories of the Northgate Hall in the past to come back. And we filled the room with all, all these octogenarians and nonagenarians who were able to like, they did an open mic thing and they were able to stand up some of them like with a bit of assistance from a walking frame or whatever and say, that's the seat where I became a Christian. Oh, you wow. Know, this is where I was standing when I heard you know god basically like call me to go to turkey and i was there for my whole life in ministry you know so it's got a really special place within our kind of christian scene i can't think of anywhere else quite like it kind of on like within you know on a national basis and so that our hearts kept coming back to the northgate hall just thinking but what happened that. in between yeah yeah so i mean as the the typical story would be it was it's owned by the city council and the city council gradually raised the rent and the students found it really hard to afford it they had maintenance issues that they couldn't sustain and in the end the city council were able to just squeeze them out and first of all it became a lesbian and gay community center so again just an indication of where things are culturally within the city and then ultimately in 2010 as nate said it became a branch of this big restaurant chain um and yeah a, a chain of restaurants that has like 300 sites you know it's owned by a billionaire down in london and so it just felt like it was never it was just no, so another you just come to that moment like nope forget it like it's never going to happen i remember walking down that street and looking in through the windows and you see like the great big kind of air handling ducts and everything you just think that's another one bites the dust baby like that church is gone like it's never coming back um but i think because it was it's got such a history we were just very aware that you know that would be perfect like if it i mean it would be a dream it would be a once in a lifetime opportunity yeah, if we could be anywhere yeah that would, that be, would be the place that would be the impossible, as it, impossible is. as it is so anyway so basically we we started just we i chatted to several people about it i know you know through various different connections i've got you know friends in oxford who some of them are in local businesses and some people kind of know the property scene and so um 
the, there was one guy who basically said, look, well, probably what you want to do is just try to get to know them at least. So Andy, the, you know, my, my buddy, the senior minister and me, we would just go in there. Like if we had people visiting town, we'd go in for breakfast or go in for dinner and try and get to know the staff. And we got to know the manager. And in January of 2020, like the pinnacle of our aspirations here was that we went in and we pitched to, to use the, the, the restaurant for an annual general meeting for the church. So like get the whole congregation together. It'll be a catered event. We thought like this is going to be a win for the restaurant, but it's going to be a win for us. And maybe they'll like us and maybe they'll offer us like to use it on Wednesday afternoons or something. I don't know. Um, we didn't really have much of a plan, but that was our. So we arranged a, an AGM for April 2020. So then obviously like all hell broke loose literally in March 2020 and our whole country went down into lockdown. And I got this email from the head office of Bill's, um, that's the restaurant um, in London. And it was just an auto-generated email that had gone out to anyone who had a reservation anywhere within the network all over the country. And it just said, dear Mr. So-and-so, you know, we're terribly sorry, your reservation had to be canceled. Like unforeseen circumstances, all of our staff have been furloughed, lots of love from the Bill's team. But at the foot of the email, it had this set of top tier email addresses, which just their like their standard footer from the head office. And one of them was the National Commercial Property Director. So I phoned up Andy and I said, okay, well, what do you think? Let's have a prayer about this. Um, and then we emailed this guy. And this is the moment where you try, you try and act a little bit bigger than you, try and act a little bit bigger than you are. Um, and so we're like, yeah, you know, have you got any idea what you're sitting on here? Like, this is a really important historic asset. And, um, you know, we would love to, you know, you must be really struggling during COVID, like you're not making any money. You know, if we could use it while the restaurant's vacant, we'd love to, or if we could sublet it from you or, you know, tell us that, you know, if you want to get rid of the lease, like, you know, we'd be up for it. Really like a, like the longest of long shots, like a total Hail Mary pass. And, uh, and, he, and he wrote back. Um, and basically we got into a conversation and then I just can't describe it. I mean, that was the summer. Is he a Christian? No, no, no. Yeah. Um, so this was the spring of 2020 and it was like a three year battle from that point because the council who were the owners were like not having it at all on all sorts of, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, you know, so we were like, we got to the point where the restaurant were really keen to work with us and then the council dug in their heels and said no. And then it looked like the restaurant were going to reopen and they like commissioned like all of the COVID modifications that had to be made to the yeah. site to make it safe. And it looked like that was kind of like the lowest point. It looked like it was never going to happen. But then we just kind of made it our business just to stay on the phone like every, every month, just phoning up the guy at the council, just like, hey, what's happening? I'm not seeing the restaurant reopen yet. What's going on? And in the end... I mean, it's been such a great experience of kind of brotherhood and boldness for a group of Christians. We have a great group of trustees and elders at the church. And, um, and we decided that we've, if, we get, if we've got a shot here, we've got to shake this up. And so we basically, we went in and offered to buy the lease off bills and basically to make it kind of like a neutral financial thing for the council. So they would get all the money that they've been promised, which was, I have no idea how we would have afforded it. But it basically surfaced like it, it neutralized finance as the, as the reason why they wouldn't do it. And it brought the other stuff to the surface. And in the end, that that forced a change in terms of the way the council were running the project. They pushed it out onto the open market, obviously believing that a church wouldn't have a chance. Yeah. They fought, they said to us, look, you've got to raise five years rent in two weeks. In They're just trying to, to like two yeah, make it yeah, too hard. Yeah. Right? They basically, they asked us to raise about three times the amount of money that the church had spent from its inception all the way to that point in two weeks. And were they requiring that of anybody else that no, was no, interested? It well, was just a hope for you. Yeah, I mean, I think 
the, the people that we were competing against are all national restaurant yeah, chains. Yeah, well, and it was always like, going to be expensive, with, but were they kind of yeah. trying to put an extra barrier in the way? Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, we stepped into that with like no prospect of like not even knowing how to begin, let alone like no prospect of success. But we came out at the end of two weeks with eight years rent. Like it was Holy. just unbelievable with people from all over the place, from within the congregation, people from here at Crossroads, mm -hmm. people from further around, you know, in other churches that, that Andy and I know, all just saying like, this is it, let's go. Like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We've got to show these guys that we mean business. And then even then we, we got to the point where we, so we did actually then win the bid with some help from an amazing property negotiator who I know from, from when I was a student. Um, and then there was this crazy moment when, so there was a Friday morning when the bids closed where we basically got the news. Like our property negotiator is like the coolest guy in the room. And he's like, I'm just gonna get to know all the other agents who are involved. I'm gonna find out what everybody else is bidding. We're gonna be the last on the dance floor. We're gonna arrive with 15 minutes to go and snag this thing. And that's exactly what happened. And so we got the news through. Yeah, you, you won the bid, like you've got the building, everything's great. Um, and then later that day, we then had a, a message saying, no, you haven't got the building. Actually, there's some kind of chaos going on inside the council and they've sublet it, that like the restaurant have sublet it to somebody else. And so that was like, we were like totally high and then totally low. And then later in the day, our lawyer came up with this. He read carefully through the contract and for various reasons, realized that the way that we had made our bid kind of neutralized this sublet proposal. And it was one of these things where if we had bid like 5% less than we'd bid, or if the sublet had come in two hours before it came in, like it just would have all gone wrong. But it was just like, God has got this, like things that were totally outside our control. And, that, and I'm just, I'm literally just scratching the surface here. It's just been, I, I've said this to several people, um, probably four or five years ago, I had the chance to go to a violin recital with my girls. And we went to see a lady called Anne-Sophie Mutter, who's probably one of the, the most celebrated violin soloists in the world. And she came to play at Keeble College, Oxford. She's got a Stradivarius and everything. And she, um, she, was, she was there and it was a seating lottery. And myself and Ginny and Willow, who at the time were probably like 12 and 10, we got like the best seats in the house. I was as close to Anne-Sophie Mutter as I am to Nate, like across the table. And I could literally like hear her breathing. I could, you could feel the strings, her fingers moving across the strings as she's producing this absolutely awe-inspiring music. And um, literally the experience of this Northgate Hall process for Andy and me has been like being those kids in the front row and watching God like at that, that close that you could almost hear him breathing. You know, it's just makes me want to cry. It's just an absolutely unbelievable experience. And I think I would just, you know, anyone who's, who's kind of excited or interested in this, I would just, I'd really encourage you to yeah, jump on the website for oxrepairs.co.uk and, and, you know, read the story and, um, yeah, and if you're moved to do so, you know, jump in and support us because we're just at the beginning of that process. We can only use still at the moment about a third of the floor area because it's a wreck. You know, we've got water pouring in through the ceiling and, you know, rats running around in the cellar. And, you know, so how long crazy. will you have the building? Yeah, because I mean, you can't own it. Right? Well, well, or you, can, you know, you? yeah, I mean, we so the way that it worked because it had been turned into a restaurant, it's like it's handled through a commercial contract. And in the UK, commercial lettings very much favor the person who's the tenant. So you have a perpetual right to, re to lease and release that building. So after our 35-year term, we just get to do it again. So the only oh, down- Oh, have a 35-year term. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and with perpetual, with, with the right to perpetually renew. So the only issue for us is just that, you know, if you, if you do that for 100 years, it's going to cost a lot more than it would just to pay the mortgage once. So we will definitely aim 
you know, to 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 own the freehold at some point if we can. So then, um, would the council uh, not be involved anymore? If we own the freehold, then yeah. we would own the freehold. But yeah, okay, okay, but it's in God's hands, and you know, and they've been, you know, it's we're we're, um, we're very happy being tenants, and you know, um, no, of course, and um, for this foreseeable future, yeah. it will be a church. That yeah. I just my yeah. question was more like, there's no yeah. risk of you guys at this point in the foreseeable future gink being kicked out yeah and we have the right to make alterations to it so we've gone through kind of planning permission and listed building consent the goal is to put it back exactly as it was so you know when it was built in the 1870s it, it had a you know you could seat 400 people in there with it had a balcony that went right round the inside and it was yeah an absolutely amazing space in which to preach the gospel that's what it was for um and so yeah our, our prayer is that god will allow us to put it back that it will be that beacon again that it used to be and that you know that the good times will roll again by his grace so yeah that's that's what we're hoping mm -hmm. for Neil I got one more question for you yeah why do you love Jesus <laughs> why wouldn't you um you know I just you know if you open up the pages of the gospels there's no one like him you know that's the thing I think that brought me to conviction and conversion when I was a teenager and has kept me you know all this time like if you Honestly, if you're if you're looking for a candidate for like the lordship for the leadership of your life, like seriously, look in the mirror. It's just when I look in the mirror, I just see like it's just inconsistent, you know, you know, promising high and delivering low, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's a mess. And, you know, if we look out, you know, into the larger landscape of people that we look up to and admire, and it's great. There are loads of things to admire and to look up to in our world, not just among Christians, but you know, it, you know, we live in a world that's full of common grace, and yet still, I, I just don't see anything, anyone close. Like, just read about him, just look at him in action, look at his compassion, his kindness, his boldness, his willingness to speak truth to power, his determination to go and do like the most difficult thing that you could possibly do. Um, you know, his faithfulness to us, despite the fact mm. that we are so disappointing, um, you know, yeah, no, no competition, you know, sign me up. That's, um, yeah, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the unrighteous man. Um, yeah, he's the person I want to follow. Mm. Nader. Minister Why do I love to Jesus? Why do you love Jesus, buddy? Uh, uh. I think of the last passages that I think I think it was the last passages that I preached at, on a Sunday at Crossroads was in Mark chapter twelve about uh, the widow's mite and just thinking about in the chaos of the temple where people are giving their gifts, the Creator of the universe, His eyes fell upon this widow who no one else saw mm. uh, in the most obscure and insignificant moment uh, to maybe the rest of the onlooking world, but to this woman, like it was her everything. And I feel like that's what I've experienced uh, in a very real way is the eyes of Christ upon me um, as a companion, but then also, like Neil said, as Lord and Savior. It comes down to who is going to be Lord. And what you described, I remember you speaking about this in Oxford, about the weight of the, the crown of being um, deity, of being God, and how we long to be like him, but ultimately we want to be God ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that weight just crushes us. And I think um, recognizing that, um, yeah, we have a Lord who who carries that weight, but who is compassionate, slow to anger, who sees the wretchedness that I am um, and loves me, um, has called me into his kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness. And so, yeah, I think he's all things, right? He is one that I can trust to put my life um, 
into that I can, I can, I can find green pasture. And I can also, when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, he does not abandon me, but he walks beside me because he has walked that path ahead of me. Um, so he's all things. He is the hope of uh, eternal life. He is the bearer of of the words of life. He is um, living water for me on the daily. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he gives purpose to my every breath. Um, and he, when I recognize my sin and my failure and my um, inability to rescue myself, um, he he comes in and saves the day. So mm. among many other things. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. He's the only reason we do any of this. And uh, with that, I want to just provide you an opportunity, Neil. I'm just so encouraged by, first of all, Neil's a workhorse. He preached on Sunday, did a lunch right after. He did an elective last night, did this this morning. He's got another one. Yep. <laughs> Dude, where's that stamina coming from? It's the Lord, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll answer that for you, but I want to give you a posted stamp or a postcard opportunity to kind of quickly say if anyone's been uh was here on sunday or at any of your events this week and their heart is stirred to get involved mm. financially or just praying how could they do that with be less how could they do that with oxford prez what do you guys need and how can we support you thank you thank you you know that's really really kind um yeah i mean i think the you know if your heart is stirred by some of this stuff i think it is a completely you know, as you, as you look at and you see the secularization of the world, I think our hearts are stirred by that and moved towards that. And we want to do something, but sometimes it's difficult, you know, if you're wherever you work or whatever you're doing, it's like, well, how can I do anything about that? But I think with the ministry in Oxford, you know, it really is a team effort. It's, it's, it's a partnership between us and Crossroads and between us and the other churches that support us. And I said this to the group last night, you know, the, the scholars who are on the ground working with me, Andy and me and the team at the church, we may be like the point of this particular spear, but the only way that that's actually going to do any damage, the only way it's going to penetrate any armor is the, is the shaft behind it. Um, and that's people praying, that's people giving, and ultimately that's God enabling. Um, yep. And w we are absolutely only as strong and useful as the team that God puts around us. And as you've just heard, the ministry is growing. W we need a we need a bigger team in order to actually keep doing what we're doing. So we would love to bring people into that group. Um, and uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to kind of welcome anyone who's listening to this who feels stirred by it to be part of it. It's yeah. really easy to do. And we can put the links to both the website for yeah. Be Less and Oxford Press yeah. in the description of this podcast. Yeah. In fact, we will do that. And then also Crossroads, just so you know, uh, our focus for year in giving this year is local and global church planning and the yeah. beneficiaries of the global part would is oxford prez mm. this year so mm. um yeah just be excited about that i mean this is awesome and why wouldn't you want to so we have uh we've committed to that so i, I have no idea what the lord has in store for that neil but i'm praying that he does an, uh, another amazing miraculous work his fingerprints are all over your life. I, 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 it's such a gift. We met way back, just briefly. I think on a on a on a Sunday that I preached way back before I was even on staff here, yeah. like last November. Yeah. But since then, being on staff here, I've only heard the world of your story, um, the ministry that God is doing through your life, and I'm honestly humbled to be in your presence as a brother in Christ, just linking arms, even if we're across the sea. So I'm just privileged to 
sit down and talk to you, Neil. And although honestly, I mean, Rod would say it, but it's our testimony. We are just ordinary, less than ordinary material here. Um, You know, so um, to him be their praise. Amen. Yeah. But it's fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to watch. So. Thank you for being a faithful vessel. And you too, Nate. Mm. Dude, yeah, you're the man. Grateful Appreciate to be you. a part of the conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. been a joy over the many years, as yeah. as Neil has described, to partner together. And um, yeah, it's it's remarkable to see God move when mm. we get a front row. Yeah, yeah. And he can do it. He yeah. can do anything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is just a really profound reminder uh, that nothing will stop him if he desires it. And so we get to just be a part of what he's inviting us into. It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was texting Rod this morning cause he's in Ukraine and he mm-hmm. said, make sure to give Neil a hug and tell him I love him. And, uh, I want you to have the last word. So if there's anything burning on your heart that you just want to encourage the people at crossroads with go for it. Yeah. I mean, I would just want to say thank you to you guys. So, um, yeah, we're so grateful. Um, it was, this church that gave us the opportunity to begin on this journey. You know, I, I felt that call to ministry as a 21 year old, but it was this church that, that called us into it. I remember Rod saying, you know, I'd, I'd put my hand up even when I was sick with the church that we were part of in London. And I remember them just saying, well, you know, you don't, you don't really fit, you know, we don't, we don't have a space for someone who is unwell and it's really high risk and everything. And I remember when I came here, I've, I remember so clearly I was part of Rod's little group of kind of guys who were thinking about ministry. And I remember him just saying, Neil, your illness is your qualification for ministry. Like, you know, and just that that vote of confidence, that belief that you guys had in us, that is totally instrumental in everything that we've talked about here. So we're just, we're grateful to you guys, to God through you. Um, yeah, Crossroads has been a massive blessing to us. And uh, yeah, we're we're privileged to continue in partnership with you. I love it. Well, if this podcast has been serving you, hit follow and the notification bell. That way you can stay up to date on the newest podcast. We will put in the description below uh, the links to Be Less, uh, which Neil is a director of, and they need support right now, um, as as they always will. And, and we can stand in the gap for them and help support them through prayer and uh, financially. So if it's been stirring you, you can click on that. Also, if you're uh, interested in Oxford Prez, you can click on that as well. Um, what else? This is the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of our faith. We love you. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>